Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You're both running a chiron that says, "Hey, this is propaganda," but also running the propaganda. Like that's a basic fail. You clearly understand that this is bad information. Why would you possibly air it? Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Mehdi Hassan, coming to you still from my home as the coronavirus lockdown here in the DC metro area continues. On today's show. White House correspondents are frequently just unable to break out of the mold that they're in. They can't think about how could we do this differently. That's my guest, the award-winning journalist, former news anchor, and now Twitter star Soledad O'Brien, who, like me, thinks the U.S. media have really dropped the ball when it comes to the Trump administration in general and this mismanaged coronavirus crisis in particular. So, in this election year of all years, is there a way to help make media coverage of this uniquely awful president any better? Or is it just too late? The only thing perhaps more depressing, more frustrating than getting the daily US death toll from the coronavirus, which is now at around 2,000 deaths a day, is watching the man most responsible for those deaths praise himself on live television every evening. Everybody's amazed at the job we're doing. And you had doctors saying that we've done an incredible job. The governors are very thankful. They know we've done a great job. Not a good job, a great job. People can't even believe the job we've done. They can't even believe it. Yes, the Trump coronavirus White House press briefing, which is less of a press briefing and more of a campaign rally at which he blusters and bloviates and mugs for the cameras, at which he plays to his MAGA base. And as he did on Monday night, just runs clips straight off of Sean Hannity's Fox News show at an official, supposedly non-partisan, taxpayer-funded government briefing about a public health crisis. But we know from reporting by The New York Times and others that Trump misses doing his regular rallies in front of his adoring fans and the live TV cameras. And so he sees these briefings not as a way of educating or informing the public or holding himself accountable, but to quote one of his associates speaking to The Times just last week to regain his, quote, swagger and to, quote, rewrite the history of the past several months. Perhaps the number one way these briefings resemble one of his campaign rallies is that he spends most of his time viciously attacking the reporters who turn up to them. What do you say to Americans who are watching you right now who are scared? Uh, I say that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. Be nice. Don't Mr. be President, threatening. My question Don't is... be threatening. Be nice. You're a third-rate reporter. And what you just said is a disgrace, okay? The same with NBC and Comcast. So I don't call it, I don't call it Comcast, I call it Comcast. And you should say congratulations, great job, instead of being so horrid in the way you ask a question. You said when someone is president of the United States, their authority is total. Who told you the president has the total authority? Enough, please. In recent days, there does seem to be a sense, finally, from some White House reporters that they maybe need to push back harder against the bully at the bully pulpit. Here's Paula Reid of CBS News on Monday evening, doing credit to her just that. The argument is that you bought yourself some time and you didn't use it to prepare hospitals, you didn't use it to ramp up testing. Right you're now, so, you're so, 20 million you're so people disgraceful. are unemployed. It's so disgraceful the way you say that. But, but what did you do with the time that you bought? 
You know the we month did? of February. That, you that's know what we did? Yeah. What do you do? What do you do when you have no case in the whole United States? You had cases. When in you, you, excuse me. You reported it. You know you're a fake. You know that your whole network, the way you cover it, is fake. So, as I asked on Twitter recently, given Trump's non-stop attacks on the press, why do reporters turn up every day for this joke of a briefing? Why do they play their role as props for him, as punching bags for this president? There's a school of thought that says, well, what the president says is news, and news is what the president says. Therefore, you have to go to these briefings. You have to take them seriously as news events. There's another school of thought, perhaps best exemplified by Jay Rosen, the media critic and professor in New York, that you should not get sucked into these calculated distractions by Trump and co, that you don't waste your time sending your best journalists to these briefings. You watch them at home on C-SPAN and instead you dig deep into what the Trump administration is doing or failing to do. The chaos on the front lines, the lack of PPE, the failure to test and the rest. Now, Personally, I'm torn. I see merits in both of those arguments, in both of those schools of thought. And look, if everyone in that briefing could be like Paula Reid of CBS was on Monday evening, if they could all do that every day, make Trump lose his shit, make sure viewers are seeing that this emperor has no clothes on, then yeah, maybe there'd be a case for going and participating regularly. But we know most of those reporters are just not up to it, are just not willing to go there. Whether it's the deferential media culture in this country, whether it's the need for access, whether it's the fear of not looking neutral enough. Who knows? People often ask me what I'd ask if I was in that briefing room and I was able to put a question direct to Trump on live TV. And the answer is, number one, Mr. President, given almost everything you say from that podium every day turns out not to be true, not to be accurate, not to be correct... Why should anyone at this point believe a damn word that you say? And number two, Mr. President, what's your response to the president of Wakanda, who has criticised your handling of this coronavirus crisis? Because you know he'd go off on T'Challa, don't you? So, one question to expose his dishonesty, one question to expose his ignorance. I think that's only fair, right? Look, whether or not you think these reporters should go to the briefing or not, there is no case, however, none, for news networks airing these so-called briefings, airing his propaganda, his misinformation, his party political attacks on the Democrats, his ridiculous and dangerous attacks on the media, live, in real time, unfact-checked, unfiltered, uninterrupted, especially in an election year where he gets to suck up all the media oxygen again and the opposition party has no equivalent airtime. By the way, why aren't the Democrats doing a daily briefing of their own, offering actual scientific information and rebutting Trump's lies every night? Why don't they do that? I guess the Democrats' desire to always be their own worst enemy is a bigger topic for another show. But back to the media. Regular listeners of this podcast and regular readers of my Intercept column will know by now that I think the US media is awful. Awful when it comes to holding the powerful to account, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. They don't do tough interviews. And when it comes to Trump in particular, they've normalised an abnormal president with their tolerance for his lies and his everyday craziness and their both sides coverage of a fascist in the Oval Office. Back at the end of 2018, I went on Seth Meyers' late night show on NBC and pointed out then what I thought was wrong with the whole media culture in this country, especially compared to the way other countries approach their elected leaders. Uh, what are the differences that you've seen in how the UK press and the US press deals with power? 
It's a very good question. And I think you guys, it's a, definitely there's a cultural issue. You guys had your revolution, war of independence, you kicked the Brits out. And yet, weirdly, you're more deferential to power, I would argue, than we are. Uh, you know, the president walks into the East Room of the White House and the White House press corps stands up, which I find British journalists, for all their sins, would not stand up if the prime minister comes into the room. They'd be lucky to even pay attention sometimes. <laughs> um, you guys have this thing where it's kind of Banana Republic-esque, where you allow your politicians to have their job titles for life. Uh-huh. So do you remember in 2012, it was Governor Romney, Governor Romney. Go- governor of what? His backyard. <laughs> yeah. he, hadn't been, he hadn't been governor of Massachusetts for five right. years. Secretary Albright, uh, Secretary Clinton, Mayor Giuliani, Ambassador Bolton. If anyone here lost their job, they wouldn't get to keep the title the next day after they've <laughs> Why do you do that? Yeah, Why do you do that with your politicians? It's weird. I just don't get it. That was December 2018. But things have only gotten worse since then. As we fast approach another presidential election with Donald Trump's name on the ballot, this time as the sitting president, you have journalists dropping the ball day after day, normalising this president again and again, hiding behind euphemisms and both sides' rhetoric, refusing to call him racist when he says racist things, refusing to call him a liar when he's lying to them, refusing to call him insane when he's having insane meltdowns in front of our eyes on an almost daily basis. There's always this weird, naive, childlike desire to give him another chance, to pretend he isn't the thin-skinned, maniacal, fraudulent con man that he so clearly is and always will be. So just during this coronavirus crisis alone, you had reporters falling over themselves to announce a new tone from the president. You had Dana Bash of CNN say, This was remarkable from the president of the United States. This is a nonpartisan. This is an important thing to note uh, and to applaud from an American standpoint, from from a human standpoint. He is being the kind of leader that people need, at least in tone, today and yesterday. Within hours of that, though, the president was back to being his crazy partisan self. Surprise! You had her fellow CNN reporter, Jim Acosta, who's normally pretty good on Trump, say this. This was a different Donald Trump tonight. I think he gets it. Again, within hours of that, the president was back to making clear he doesn't get it and hasn't changed, won't change. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me all the time, shame on fricking me. But maybe they're not being fooled. Maybe they know what they're doing and agreeing to. Jonathan Carl of ABC News, who you heard earlier getting personally attacked by the president the other day. See, there's a typical fake news deal. You asked me when she was appointed. I told you when she was appointed. You're a third-rate reporter. And what you just said is a disgrace, Okay. When he was recently asked about the president's attacks on him, he just blithely accepted them. Carl said, and I quote, We shouldn't take offence. I don't think he even means it. So you have to constantly remind yourself it doesn't matter. What? What? Are you kidding me? Is he a White House correspondent for a major news network or is he suffering from battered spouse syndrome? I'm sorry, it's because of reporters like this. It's because of a cowardly, deferential, spineless media mindset like this that Donald Trump is president today and may be president again come next January. 
My guest today spent more than three decades working for NBC, MSNBC, and most famously for CNN. She's an award-winning, iconic former news anchor who even played herself in Batman vs. Superman. And she's currently the head of her own media production company and host of the syndicated talk show Matter of Fact. But the reason I'm most delighted to be joined by Soledad O'Brien today is because she has become, especially on Twitter, one of the most blunt, ferocious, and much-needed critics of the US media. In particular, the US media's failure to properly hold this cacistocratic Trump administration to account. And she joins me now. Soledad, thanks for joining me on Deconstructed. The pleasure is mine. Thank you for having me. Uh, Let's just cut to the chase, get to the point on one of the big media debates we're having right now. Should cable news be airing these often two-hour-long press briefings or campaign rallies, as they more are, from the White House live every night? Where do you stand on that debate? It's a pretty simple answer. And the answer is no, not live. Yes, the content should be available somewhere. But I think when they're carried live and people are unable to provide any context for what everyone, I think, would admit is an almost two-hour-long slew of misinformation and disinformation and just often just yeah. full-on crazy, crazy, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know that you can be a network whose job is to inform people with factual information and then say, well, you know, this two-hour-long uh, rant – now we have to do a fact check and give context to everything. I think that's hugely problematic. So I would say absolutely not, not live. Definitely that content should be available. And certainly, you know, you can take chunks of what the president has said and give them context and framing and accuracy and challenge them. Uh, Otherwise, it's just purely propaganda, I think. Uh, One of the things you called out on Twitter recently was all these CNN chirons on Monday evening that were bluntly calling out Trump for dishing out propaganda, for rewriting history. And CNN were getting praised for saying this stuff on screen in these in these in the text at the bottom of the screen. And you said, well, why are you airing them then? Well, exactly. And I mean, I think if you're both running a chiron that says, hey, this is propaganda, but also running the propaganda, <laughs> like that's a basic fail. Yeah. And it You're actually is an indication it. that everybody understands it's propaganda, but there's an entertainment value to it. And so they're going to run these chirons and, and kind of elevate the the drama, if you will, of the moment, because it almost looks like the Chiron guy is fighting with the, what the president is saying, and it versus you clearly understand that this is bad information. Why would you possibly air it? Why would you do that? You and I have been uh, critical of some of the reporters who cover the president on a daily basis, White House correspondents. Do you think we're seeing any kind of improvements in recent weeks as a result of this crisis, at least in terms of questioning? Uh, Paula Reid of CBS News on Monday evening uh, got a lot of plaudits for persisting uh, with some pretty pointed questioning of the president. Others from PBS, uh, from CNN have gotten under Trump's skin on more than one occasion in recent weeks. Are we seeing a change or no? I don't exactly know. Uh, (laughs) Sort of. Right. I mean, it was only how many days ago that people were telling us about the changed tone. Yes, the new tone. Jay Rosen Rosen predicted it. Remember, he's like, and countdown to the changed tone of the president. And that was not 
six months ago. That was, I think, last week. So, so if you're asking in the macro, no, I don't think there's been some huge shift. I think you have some individual reporters. I thought Paula Reed did a great job. Yamich has done a fantastic job yes. for PBS. Uh, Brian Karam is very aggressive. Um, and there's a handful of people who've done a really good job jumping in, but it's a handful. And it's not particularly it's the exception, not the, not the rule. Yeah, well, I think the fact that they're, we're applauding them is an indication Indeed. that every so often it pops up. I mean, it's not consistent. And so I think that's hugely problematic because what is consistent is, listen, COVID-19 is the great equalizer. It is not. Uh, the president has a new tone. Today he became presidential. Yes. If he could just you know, harness this yes. moment, he'll be able and to so do that. It's even, people, it's even people like Jim Acosta, who's been very good in criticizing the president and calling out his lies in real time. Even Jim Acosta goes on air and says he finally gets it tonight which he didn't get it, of course. Yeah, he hasn't I think because it. there's a lot of wishful thinking. And I think for the White House correspondents, there's a, a dream of a narrative, right? Which is, and I see this all the time, which is something was said and, and that person learned their lesson over time. It's sort of the Susan colonization of the yes. colonization, right? This idea of like, this thing happened Forces were acted upon this person and this person, because in their heart, ultimately, they could learn, change their ways, right? And I think for Jim Acosta, who's a very solid reporter and always has been, I've known him for a long time. I think he's 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 wishful, and the Washington, uh, the Wall Street Journal reporters, you know, are wishful, and they really do just wish and hope that this thing is going to happen. And when you watch the State of the Union, and when Van Jones said a million years ago, <laughs> "Tonight's the night he became presidential," yes. it's it was it was it was this idea that there's a hope, right, that he'll yeah. he'll get it, and, and things will go back it. to normal. The irony is people think that reporters are loving this moment. In fact, I'm sure most of these correspondents would love to get back to an old state of affairs where everyone just got along and there was a kind of, you know, rules of the game that everyone followed and, and they didn't have to do this. Uh, sort of, right? The chaos is an interesting story mm. and the White House correspondents are in the middle of it. And so one but of the reasons... they don't like being the story. I think that's very clear. They don't, they wish they didn't, <sighs> they wish they didn't have I to call things out. I think how you make your career, honestly, right? I think well, then more of them would be doing it. I mean, I mean, if that was the case, I wish more of them would do it then because they're not. Uh, no, I think they like, listen, many have in there like to talk about how the president dissed them, right? I mean, it's, it, it does elevate you to be in some kind of a conflictual sort of kind of yes. relationship sometimes. Um, it does. And, and if you've ever been to the White House Correspondents' Dinner or you've been to the, the White House Christmas Party, right, there is a real joy in being able for the White House Correspondents and, you know, for me too, I went one year be able to walk around and be like, wow, this is a celebration of, of me. It's one of the reasons I stopped going to the White House Correspondents' Dinner, because I just thought, like, this is weird. Mm. It shouldn't be that challenging the president is kind of a punchline of a thing. It's why I think the White House Correspondents Association sucks in so many, many ways. It's just bad, right? And then they invite yeah. bold-faced names who are kind of in the media for salacious reasons frequently it's just become a, a real hot yeah. mess and then when someone like michelle wolf actually uh speaks truth to power they throw her under the bus not the white house um yeah and very Sarah quickly are able started. to say things like it, it's amazing how lies will roll off someone's tongue <laughs> somebody who's been hesitant to write the word lies in their column suddenly finds Indeed. their voice to be able to say you know this and, is what and, happened and ironically, this is my the, Sarah, the sarah sanders uh, that that was a great that was a moment for me a real defining moment that that 
that dinner where they just threw the comedian under the bus and took the side of Sarah Sanders, who, who slams them every day. And even when she had her leaving due uh, last year, they all had a party for her. White House correspondents all attended a leaving party for a woman who has done more to kind of smear them and demonize them than any uh, other person aside from Donald Trump, perhaps. Right, which makes me then say, I don't think that they really truly believe that their organization has been maligned. Politico, Hmm. actually a reporter from Politico, I can't remember her name. She was relatively new for Politico. She was the one who was pulling together the going away shindig, right? For someone who has undermined you. And listen, I think it's perfectly fine to say, listen, good luck on your next thing, bye. (laughs) But this is a person who has literally undermined what you do for the American people day in and day out. It seems bizarre, but of course it's not. Robert Robert Mueller documented her lies to the press in his report. Um, The day after the presidential election in November 2016, David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker, wrote a piece warning that the media, the commentariat, would try and, quote, normalise this deeply abnormal president, his win, his presidency. They have, haven't they? It's been normalisation all the way. Constantly. Listen, when you say, I think he's going to turn around, or I think he gets it, or today's the day he became president, or, you know, a new somber tone, it's not a new somber tone. And it is so insane to me how, and it really is an indication of sort of this privilege of being able to have people just give you chance after chance after chance with no evidence at all that you actually, you know, go back and forth between a somber tone or that there's any sort of there's no indication that the president really even understands to a large degree what he's doing. So I don't know how you can imbue him with this sense of today he's got a somber tone. It's just silly. But it happens so frequently that, I don't know, I, I begin to just get frustrated with my own criticism. because Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's like, oh my God, I'm shouting into I know. the wind it's the same, the same. People say, people say, how many times are you going to point that out? Because it has to be pointed out. I wish I didn't have to point out the obvious. And as you point out, you know, uh, the, this is a president who doesn't know what he's doing. Even if you put aside his mental state, just in terms of his knowledge of the job or the real world around him, uh, Daniel Dale of CNN, who used to be with a Canadian newspaper, uh, often points out, and he said it on this show a while back before he had joined CNN, that why don't reporters just ask him a factual question? You know, he doesn't actually know anything. Why not ask a question that reveals that rather than asking Which is so interesting, isn't it? I mean, imagine if you said, well, well, where is Ukraine? Yeah. Point to it on the map. I mean, yeah. no one ever does. It is amazing to me. So I do Which think Which is what Mike Pompeo I, tried I, to do to an NPR reporter, of course. Maybe he should do it with his Right, boss. right. I really do think that the, the White House correspondents have done a poor job. And listen, the assessment will be that they did a poor job. But I think there was an assessment that post-2016, uh, the, the political 
reporters did a bad job in many mm. ways. And there's no hell to pay. There's no, you know, here's what it does. It helps elevate your name recognition so you can sell your book. Everybody has written a book about President Trump, right? You're like, if you spent more time working on your lame ass questions and less time working on your book about your experiences, you know, Trump is so nice to me, says John Carl, yes. you know, in person. And then when we get into these things, like, okay, then learn your lesson. Yes, I just, that's it's the problem. Me, they honestly. haven't, they and, haven't and learned their lesson is, is the problem. And that's what's worrying as but November approaches. But there's no, but there's no incentive to, right? So when mm. people don't learn their lesson, you have to say, well, one, is everybody stupid? No, they're not. They're very, very bright, talented people. So then it, part of it is there's no incentive to learn the lesson. And what is the lesson? The lesson is more FaceTime. The lesson is you become well-known. The lesson is you get to have a reputation. I mean, would you know about any of the White House correspondents in the middle of a very boring year about the, you know, mm. the transportation week? You would not. Yes. You would not. So in many cases, people are making their names. But, on I, but I actually, I, I, I totally agree with every word you just said, but I would just add to it and say, I think it's even worse than that because there is the kind of cynical making of names and then there is the broader culture which just accepts all of this as normal, which accepts the rules of the game that don't apply at a time like this. So you look at the New York Times as a whole uh, from its editor-in-chief downwards and their coverage of this president. I mean, you have have some excellent reporting, investigative journalism for the New York Times that has genuinely informed and educated us. For example, last week, their big piece showing how Trump dropped the ball at every stage of this coronavirus crisis. A very yes, good article. Very well I everyone reported and fascinating. Yes. And then on the other hand, you have New York Times reporters who then write pieces about Trump in real time, which basically euphemize his, uh, you know, use euphemisms to cover up the fact that, as you said, he doesn't know what he's doing. So, you know, for example, on Monday evening, after Trump ran that propaganda video pu pulled off of Fox News at the start of his briefing, after he had his meltdown with Paula Reid of CBS and with Caitlin Collins of CNN, he ranted, he raved. I just want to read out to you what the New York Times wrote in their report on that briefing on Tuesday morning. President Trump turned Monday's daily task force briefing into an aggressive defence of his own halting right. response Insane. and used Insane. a campaign-style video to denounce criticism. For nearly an hour, Mr. Trump vented his frustration. That's normalising on a level I've never seen. Anyone who watched that in real time would not recognise that description of the event. This is where I think the New York Times has just failed and failed and failed while doing some really remarkable yes. reporting. They literally cannot bring themselves to capture the actual tone of what's happening. Because if you read that and you didn't listen to the press conference, and sometimes it's a press conference where no press asks any questions, so it's yes. not really a press yes. conference, uh, then you'd say, well, that's not what I watch. What I watch was unhinged and insane and crazy. And they have failed and they consistently fail to do that. And this is the thing that I have found truly uh, disappointing about the New York Times. And I am, oh, as I always tell them, a double subscriber. I get a copy to my office and a copy to my home. You know, they just really lack the ability for introspection. They don't know. And occasionally they'll answer you back on Twitter and it's always, you know, back off, shush. You yes. don't know what you're talking about. They Very just defensive. never say. And listen, as defensive a to the point I've had of arrogance. a zillion people say they disagree with something I've done. And usually you'll say, well, you know, here's why I disagree with you. Or tell me why you think what I said was wrong. Yeah. But what they do is they just are so defensive. And it's many of them, right? They circle the wagon. If you criticize one, you find suddenly find oh, well, the, everybody. The worst, is, you know, uh, so, Leonard, you know this. One of the worst things a journalist can do, and you and I have been working 
in the media for a while is to say, oh, I'm getting attacked from the left and the right. I must be doing something correct. I must be straight down the middle. Which, and they seem no, it to just might mean that, that both the left and the, the right. Are, yeah, it might just mean that you're really bad. Um, exactly. Of, <laughs> it's actually a sign that you suck and this particular thing was particularly bad. I mean, it's true. And so it's disappointing because there's so many things in the New York Times that are fantastic. And yes. then some days you're like, verifiably untrue is a, is a, is a <laughs> phrase that Maggie Haberman used. I'm like, what the hell is verifiably untrue? Oh, no, the, the, the euphemisms for lying are, are astonishing and for racism, racial, taint, yeah, racially yeah. tainted, well, racially tinged, racially coded. I know. Just say exhausting. racist. It's, it's a exhausting. few letters. And it's Just, a very good indication of who's there, right? Whenever you... Whenever you read the New York Times and you read that, you're like, wow, these are people who are not people of color for the most part. They don't have a voice and a seat around the table for the most part. They're not pushing back and challenging some of this very overt bullshit, and they cannot help themselves. And so it's, it's it is, I mean, we already know the New York Times is not particularly diverse, but they just are not open to another point of view that says, what does racially tinged mean? I mean, one of the things I liked best about being in newsrooms and that I miss, actually, because I'm not in a newsroom now, is this idea that you could argue a point and call people out and just say, I don't know what that means. You yeah. know, what, what I used to have a guy, a <laughs> great guy, and he used to like to write army regulars. I'm like, what's an army regular? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> it's not a it's not a phrase that anybody knows what you're trying to say. And our job is to communicate with people. And they do the same thing. And no one ever says racially tinged. What the actual hell is that? Yeah, they can't do it. I think they know that it's a way of not saying racist. And what's interesting is it can be done. Just to just to finish off our briefing conversation, The Guardian, British newspaper, their White House correspondent opened his news report with these words of, of Monday night. A toddler threw a self-pitying tantrum on live television on Monday night. Unfortunately, he was 73 years old, wearing a long red tie and running the world's most powerful country. Now, I don't think any yeah. American paper would have ever allow their White House correspondent to open a news story in that way, but it needs to be done. Uh, we're not in normal times. Let me ask you this, uh, Sir Leonard. What would you say to a conservative who just laughs his head off at this idea that the liberal media is soft on Trump, who would say, no way, the media is full of hardcore liberals who are always attacking Trump? You know, honestly, if someone says that, I, I just don't really argue with people about that. I, I, I would just say I, I think you're wrong. I mean, I don't think engaging people on something where they're clearly not there to have a thoughtful conversation about it because there's tons of evidence to the contrary. Uh, I think, you know, the, there's no point in having that discussion. But sadly, a lot of liberals believe that, too. They will say defensively, no, no, the media is very anti-Trump. We're actually too anti-Trump. I think the journalists often are afraid of being called liberals. And I, I often will say to people, like, what does that mean? I don't even know when you say, like, what are you, are you, are you asking me, am I for equal rights for human beings? Yes, I am. So I don't know. Is that a definition? Like, I, I, I would have said that that's, you know, and so I, I often think this idea of like liberal conservative, what does that even mean about something? I, I, I know a range of people who don't fall in, you know, easily in any category. And so I, I, I think I would just push back on what are we even talking about? Give me define all these terms. You're someone who spent more than two decades working at NBC and CNN as a reporter. Three then a, decades. Three Can decades. Can you believe it? Okay. Oh, my gosh. Three decades as a reporter, an anchor. How did you become recently, dare I put it, this outspoken, no holds barred, no holding back mainstream media critic, especially on Twitter? I mean, you don't spare anyone, whether it's CNN, The Washington Post, even us at The Intercept. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't really think of it as 
as recent, it, partly it's social media has yes. enabled us to have that conversation. And I think uh, certainly under Trump, I felt like things had to be said that journalists who would, who would, by the way, text me and reach out to me behind the scenes and lament what they had to do, but felt they had to keep their job and do it. So I felt like, well, I can do this because I'm self-employed. I run a production company and and I have my opinions. And I think Twitter is a very good platform for your opinions. And mine are informed because I've been in the business 31 years. Um, but I, when I was at CNN, for example, I often was the one in a meeting who would say, I just disagree with this. And I had a decent amount of power. I was the anchor of a show. I, I ran the documentary yes. division. you know. And so I think part of the obligation is to say like, yeah, I think this is a bad idea or, oh, I think this is wrong. And sometimes you bite your lip and you suck it up and you do it. But but part of the value of a bunch of smart people around a table is that they challenge you, that they say, you know, Soledad, I think that idea is not very good. But I today, think that's been done. But today, Soledad, you know? are you able to get away with what you get away with because you don't care about access anymore or having to anchor that show or not having to worry about being a guest on Meet the Press or Morning Joe? Oh, 100%. I mean, I think one thing that has been very clear is what the what the content that they're creating is so uninteresting to me, uh, and I I don't I have zero interest in being a guest. Being a guest is a pain in the ass. Uh, you have to put makeup on and drive into a place, and I mean it's just not like <laughs> it's never been my dream. Uh, so so it's just I, I don't have a dream to do that. And I've had friends who've texted me and said, you know, you're so right, but I like I'd like to be a guest on Meet the Press, so I can't say this. Have you and had texts? Like, have, okay. you, have you had texts from, you mentioned people who lamented the coverage and have privately said to you, you know, people still working within these organizations. I wonder, do you mm-hmm. have, do you have former colleagues reach out to you and say, come on, Solad, give us a break. We're trying our best. Tone oh, it never. down. Tone it oh, down. never. Oh, interesting. Never. Um, I, I think people will say that to you on Twitter. I think the New York Times people will be like, I think you're not being fair to whoever, um, you know, not being fair to. Uh, I much more frequently get someone who texts me or DMs me and says, oh, my God, you're totally right about that. I'm just so embarrassed to be working here. Who is the MSM, mainstream media journalist, print or broadcast, who has disappointed you most, frustrated you most in this age of Trumpian misinformation? I don't have one. I think some people do a great job sometimes and a and a poor job another time. I think part of the New York Times challenges are that I think Dean um the, the the guy who's ahead of it, Dean Bacay, is, is is does a bad job running his you know, some of it is leadership, right? It's you mm. can't really blame the journalist. And certainly some of the headlines are problematic, but they're not technically the journalist's fault. And I mean, the headlines and not, the tweets are often worse than the pieces. Yeah, frequently, yes. But, you know, I think that I don't really blame an individual because I think it's a bigger systemic mm, problem. Yes. Listen, the decisions that are that put stuff on the air on CNN are not the anchor's decisions. I mean, Brian Seltzer sometimes will say, well, an executive producer there, you let me promise you, there is no EP who's making the decision to take Trump or not. It is a decision that is being made at the very highest levels. Yes. It's a huge decision. So there's no person on a show who says, you know what, here's what I think my show will be. They just don't have that kind of autonomy. You can tell because you watch the shows, they're told. And when I did a show, you know, here's kind of who you can work with. Here's kind of who you're thinking about booking. And we're going to run it up the chain so that everybody knows. Hmm. What's the one thing, and given, you know, we haven't had time to get into the whole corporate side of things. A lot of these are big corporations owning these companies uh, that don't want to rock the boat too much, either in terms of the wider economy or the wider politics. What's the one thing, though, within the corporate constraints that we have that media organizations you think could do to improve their coverage of politics of Trump right now in this election year? One thing you'd like to see change? You know, I think it's almost a lack of imagination. 
it's this idea of, you know, you could just think about it differently. And when you go into scenarios, what I always loved about covering breaking news, usually overseas somewhere, is that a lot of stuff is failing, right? So the satellite doesn't work. This doesn't work. You can't have that. That story fell apart. This thing, there's no phone service, whatever. And you have to think on your feet. Like, we're going to have to tell the story this way. And it seems when people, especially these White House correspondents, are frequently just unable to break out of the mold that they're in. They can't think about how could we how could we do this differently? An amazing thing about being in a great news organization, and I liked working for big companies. I really did. Uh, I loved direct deposit. I loved organizations that had money so you could go and report, and we did a lot of great reporting, and a lot is still being done. But you do need to push people to, like, we could do this differently. Let's throw everything out the window and talk about how should we think about this strategy? And I don't think that happens very frequently. I don't think anybody's saying, okay, this is a new day. What should, if anything is possible, how could we do this? When, when I worked early on at CNN, I remember, or even before that, even in local news, I remember uh, you'd have like a Ku Klux Klan grand wizard running for office, right? So that became, how do we cover a guy who's yeah. in the KKK without giving him a giant platform to basically be a KKK member? How do we think about doing this? And a bunch of smart people getting around to strategize about how do we serve our audience? Which doesn't seem to be happening now. covering a story is really kind of would be a useful conversation. I don't think that's happening today. I, I worry that all the same mistakes of 2016 and then some are going to be made in 2020. Absolutely. So just Listen, on no the- one's sorry. No one is sorry. No one. The only person uh, who, there's only one reporter from CNN um, uh, who has, who's a, uh, 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 Tubin, Jeff Tubin, who said, I, I did a bad job covering Hillary Clinton's emails. Yeah. Nobody else. Nobody, not anyone from the New York Times. And I, I would love to know, and I should go through this, who wrote the most? Who were the bylines? Who were the individuals? Like, that's a really good question for them. Do you, in a moment, I have stories I regret. I have things that I approach yep. wrong. In Hurricane Katrina, we, we took the police chief's word for the number of dead. He was wrong. He was going through a traumatic incident himself, like everybody else in the town was, in the city was. So we were wrong. And we came back and talked about, like, wow, how could we do this better than next time. I mean, you don't even have to go back to 2016. We've had three and a half years of Trump, given he's lied to them so many times and they keep accepting his lies. It's amazing that no White House correspondent stands up and says, why should we believe a word you say, Mr. President? I would love to hear one reporter say that even once in a briefing. And it won't happen because they'll lose the gig and it won't happen because they'll lose their seat. Let me ask you this on 2020 before we finish. One last thing. Something you and I very much agree on is Trump's awfulness and the media's awful coverage of Trump. Something we very much disagree on is Bernie Sanders. You've been very hard on Bernie Sanders and on some of his online supporters. Let me ask you this. What did you make of his endorsement of Joe Biden this week? Uh, You know, I thought it was very gracious, maybe more gracious than he had to be. And I thought that um, I, I thought that it signaled that he understands that getting Trump out of office is the primary goal, and that if you divide the vote, you're going to maybe can the election to Trump. So I thought it was an incredibly gracious statement that he made. And just from a media perspective, you have Joe Biden now as the presumptive Democratic nominee. One of the reasons why I always thought Bernie Sanders would be a better candidate to take on Trump than the rest of the Democrats is because Trump is going to suck all the oxygen out of the room media wise this year. And very few Democrats can match him on a national platform in terms of media coverage. I thought Bernie was one of the few. Do you think Joe Biden can match him in terms of media coverage and getting attention and dealing with some of these structural problems that you and I have discussed over the past half hour? Uh, 
possibly, but I think one I think one of the things that I thought was really unhelpful about Bernie Sanders is that he had a lot of a similar angry tone and a lot of his followers had a similar thing, like a sense of of annoyance. And about listen, the media, I think you mean. people have yeah, in general. I mean, and I think people have a right, of course, to be mad. Oh, yeah. But There's I think it's to be exhausting. Mad about. And I, well, absolutely. I mean, I say that as so I'm just trapped on, in my Just bedroom. on Biden, though, do you think Biden has what it takes to oh, run a so, media yeah, campaign? Yeah, well, Knowing what you know yeah. about media coverage of presidential candidates and Trump and what we've discussed about Trump, can Biden beat him at the media game? I worry. Yeah, you know, he probably can for two reasons. One, I think the media game of, of punching back is exhausting for people. So the media will play that game, but I actually think your suburban voter lady in wherever is exhausted by it. And if you look at some of the, you know, it's, it, so I think Biden's tone is actually, he was not my candidate at all, but I think his tone is going to be fine because I don't think people want the person who's going to punch back. I think people are tired of the punching. I think people are tired and they want compassion and they want generosity and they want that stuff, number one. And number two, I think the more airtime Trump gets, and Andy, uh, Adam Serwer wrote something about that this morning. I love him. He's the greatest. He was on the show and, a couple of weeks uh, ago. Very good. He's very good. He's amazing. And one of the things that he said that I truly believed is this idea that like Trump signing all these checks is genius. I don't know that that's necessarily true. Uh, he said that that he thought that it might not be true that you know you end up sticking your name on a thing that people are angry about, people are frustrated about. Like you kind of own it yeah. now, and they're not going to say like, "Oh my gosh, a twelve hundred dollar windfall! Ooh, amazing!" They're going to say twelve hundred dollars doesn't come close to what I need. Oh my god, this is a crisis. And I, I you know, so I don't know that the more the, the only upside of these bizarre pressers has been. Trump is revealing himself to be nutty. Even if the New York Times doesn't frame it that way, if you watch it, you think he has lost his shit I know, completely. The problem is and most so people don't I, watch it. They see the sanitized, compartmentalized versions on their local news or evening news, and that's sure. the worry. Yeah, possibly. So I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think giving him more airtime necessarily is always going to be helpful for him. So, Lynn, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for taking time out to join us on Deconstructed. Always my pleasure. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Take care. Bye. That was Soledad O'Brien, host of Matter of Fact and former CNN News anchor. We need more high-profile voices like hers, people who have worked at the highest levels in the news media, but who are willing to call out media failures, willing to call out the horrifically weak coverage of this far-right, incompetent, corrupt, reckless administration, who aren't willing to go along with the media's normalisation of the abnormal. The problem is, as she rightly points out, no top journalists today are willing to accept that they got it wrong in 2016 and that they're getting it wrong again in 2020. Trump is a lucky guy. Despite being the worst president in modern American history by a country mile, he has a good chance of getting re-elected. And sadly, he can partly thank the US media for that. Oh, the irony. That's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter, at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. 
go to theintercept.com's forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice, iPhone, Android, whatever. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps new people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. Stay safe. Stay indoors. See you next week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.